Thank you very much. And I thank the conveners of this unique uh, workshop. And I thank you for the very short but concise uh, presentation. I may add that I'm happy, very happy about the fact that I'm, that I'm the former or the retired director <laughs> of the Institute of Humanities. Yes, I can tell you, with your, which gives you an absolutely new feeling about uh, uh, directorship and all these things. It's great. And I'm convinced that discussing sensible issues uh, like identity will permanently face the trap of lacking differentiation between looks and perspectives from outside and from inside. Yeah? And to avoid any misunderstanding, I do by no means <coughs> insinuate that somebody looking on her, his uh, own identity from inside, it would ipso contain a lack of objectivity and vice versa. Nevertheless, we should permanently try to avoid confusion of these two aspects. <clears throat> About 30 or, three years, uh, 40, 30 or 40 years ago, there were intense debates concerning ethnic and cultural identities, mostly in order to avoid further pitfalls caused by nationalist ideologies and convictions. And I refrain from further theoretical debate of, uh, debate of this item by referring to an important uh, key article by the sociologist and anthropologist Andreas Wimmer from Columbia University, uh, which made a strong impression on my on my own consideration, the making and unmaking of ethnic boundaries, a multi-level process theory, yes, published in uh, 2008. Yeah. According to Wimmer, uh, ethnic boundaries or Wimmer, ethnic boundaries and subsequently border uh, and borders of uh, boundaries of identity should be seen within a scheme of various and variable horizontally and vertically arranged levels. This goes with scrutinizing contemporary conditions and much more historical ones. Yeah? In the case of historical and pre-modern circumstances, the category, mainly the category of time, yeah? <coughs> uh, has, uh, must be and must enlarge this grid of various levels. Occasionally, lack of evidence due to limited purposes of source information will also affect negatively any efforts for reconstruction, reconstructing consciousness of identities in the past. It deserves to combine our endeavors from two sides. The look from outside can help us to avoid hazy visualization caused by too close inspection and perception. The view from inside will definitely provide us a much greater amount of facts figures and matters, and above all, the wisdom of deeper knowledge and experience, which is in many case difficult, cases difficult to gain from outside. I must confess, until the time being, I'm influenced to a limited extent by concepts having been developed by Benedict Anderson, Eric Hobsbawm, but I am also strongly inclined towards what Professor Ashraf has called in his uh, unequaled uh, a key article on uh, Iranian identity, Iranian identities in Encyclopedia Iranica, yeah? what he has called their uh, historicizing perspective. And I'm indebted, as I said, to Andreas Wimmer for having convinced me of a more critical and open view to Antonio Gramsci than I have practiced uh, some still, still some 15 years ago. Anyway, considerations like these should subsequently in the <coughs> results of subsequently in the acknowledgement that any definite judgment on consciousness and awareness of Iranian identity in pre-modern historical periods 
and conditions will not be feasible according to my own premises. This means practical that I cannot agree with the assumption of a continuous development of a master narrative concerning any kind of Iranian or albeit identity of anywhere from antiquity until contemporary modern times. But I see a lot of potentially efficacious elements, cultural brickstones and modules which may contribute to any efforts to construct such concepts of identity. <coughs> These elements can be easily proved by source investigation and they have a potential to be used to, in favor to create narratives which may make us imagining aspects of pre-modern national identity. In the mentioned article, a key article, Professor Ahmad Ashraf has dealt with an essay of mine concerning, uh, in, in detail and critically sometimes, concerning historical aspects of the Persian language shaping some of uh, such elements in his masterly and all-encompassing contribution on Iranian identity, in, as I mentioned already, in volume 30 of the Encyclopedia Iranica. I'll not repeat my arguments concerning this particular theme, language, in my present paper, but I'll refer to some other aspects I have dealt with in some, other, in some further publications of mine. And in this point, uh, it will, it's not, it cannot be avoided that I come close to what Professor Ashraf had referred uh, to um, in his previous speech. An important formative element of any constructions of identities can be found in an enduring and long-lasting concept which offers excellent possibilities of contemporary, uh, comparative historical studies which I, what I call regionality. This is or territoriality, a collective awareness of existence of various regions in the sense of acknowledged territories and boundaries. And the Sasanian rule, it, go, it goes without saying that Iran, Iran Shahr, had been acknowledged as an imperial territory and this territory could be precisely, more or less precisely, defined by its sub-regions and provinces. Although Sasanians were probably not aware of uh, their Achaemenian forerunners, most of the old Iranian satrapies can easily be recognized in the Sasanian Empire too. There were the provinces of Pars and Kerman, and above all Media, and the most important at the most important western province in Iran, and its northwestern extension, as, just as an example, Media Atropatene had been accepted already in antiquity, and it survived as Adurbadigan under the Sasanians and exists as Azerbaijan until the time being. <coughs> An important administrative and military measure under Shahpur was the creation of Khurasan by amalgamating the hitherto acknowledged provinces of Ariana, Herat, Margiana, Marv, Bactria, Balkh, we heard about that, and Hircania, Gurgan. Consciousness of Iran as a political, terri political territory did not survive the Arab conquest. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the lands of the Eastern Caliphate, quoting Gilles French, were maintained as an administrative element not having been anymore identified as Iran, but as being composed by a number of provinces, regions, the dimensions of which represented by far the territory of the vanished Sasanian Iran. This territory, having been ruled by Al-Hajjaj under the early Caliphs, could be indicated by media, yeah, in the west, and Khorasan in the east, and some additional regions and provinces in between. 
Media, having been called Mah under the Arab conquerors, was later named Jibal, and eventually Iraq under the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, Iraq, better Iraqain, the two Iraqs consisted of the so-called Arabian Iraq, Bain or Nahrain, and the Persian Iraq, Media proper. Despite other, for, just following the, the, the Sasanian uh, model. Despite former, other former Sasanian provinces, we were maintained under Abbasid, uh, Abbasid administration. The big counterpart of Iraq in the west was the easternmost province of Khorasan under, this, under Khorasan. Under the Sasanians, the river Oxus had been accepted, at least its main parts, yeah, as the northeastern border of the empire Transoxania, or the geographical location of Zogtia, completed by Khorasm in the northwest, but not having been Sasanian. To the caliphs, Sokhya and Khorasm were perceived to be conquered and incorporated into the caliphate. Subsequently, this area was not anymore understood as apart from Khorasan, but as a Khorasanian extension, territorial extension. The word Mavar al-Nahr refers perfectly to this evidence. The Oxus, the Amudarya, did not anymore indicate a borderline, boundaries, but a connecting element between two analog territories, thus understood as something like enlarged Khorasan, as the territories of the Samanid rulers may indicate. We find evidence in abundance that the two great areas, Iraq and Khorasan, were accepted as two competitive and adversative poles. When the great Seljuks divided the, their empire about uh, 1,100, uh, 1, they did it exactly by following this separation, Iraq, Khorasan. Yeah? And in his report to the Khorasan-Shahian conquest of Western Iran, the historian Ravandi has insisted intensely on talking in favor of the Iraqis in opposition to the Easterners, whom he disliked, naturally. To summarize, the concept of Iraq and Khorasan, Iraq, Iraq, and Khorasan as complementary parts had come into as complementary parts had come into existence under Sasanians, thus identifying two important regions of the Iranian Empire. Under the caliphs, Iran as such was extinct, but the two great regions remained as the main elements of the eastern part of the caliphate as counterparts. As a consequence, former Iranian identities were substituted by Iraqi and Khorasani, etc. identities. Maybe they were in some cases they were in some cases perceived as two aspects of a common Ajami self-perception among the literati elites in Baghdad, but possibly much less in ordinary average life in the whole region. One may conjecture about the actual reasons which motivated the Chinggisid Ilkhans in the 13th century, rather to the end, the second half, uh, second half of the 13th century, to rename their empire officially Iran after the formal usage of the term had been fallen into oblivion in administrative structures for more than six centuries. It deserves to shed some light on the specific structure a structural, sorry, a specific structural character of, of the Chinggisid world empire. After Chinggis Khan's death in 1227, the whole empire was divided into his sons. This partition having been called the partitions having been called Ulus in Mongol. They, there were two important Uluses from the very beginning: Jochi 
the realm of the so-called Golden Horde, and Chagatai, yeah, Transoxiania, and today's Xinjiang in China. A third Ulus was given to the descendants of Tului, another son of Genghis Khan's, the Ulu of Ögedai, fourth son, can be neglected in this moment, at this moment. Tului had three sons, Hulagu, Mönke, and Kubilai. Mönke was recognized as Great Khan, Great Khan, his brother and successor in this capacity, Kubilai, as well, and Hulagu III was the conqueror of the lands of Iran and the founder of the dynasty of the Ilkhans. Perception of regions under the Ilkhan must be seen from two different views. On the one side, they understood themselves as successors of the Sasanians, and called their, uh, called their empire officially Iran. Iran Zamin for the term. In a regionalist perspective, this step had spe specific consequences. Iraq, ancient media, was not any more thought in contrast towards Khorasan, but on the contrary, these two important landscapes were redesigned as two complementary units under the Ilkhans. The Amudayo returned to its function as a border. At the western Caspian shore, Darband, in today's Dagestan, was perceived as the northernmost spot belonging to this renewed Iran, separating the northwestern Iranian provinces of Shaki and Shirvan, at that time Iranian, from their barbarian northern neighbors in the Golden Horde. At first glance, the situation may have reminded us of something like a relaunch of the pre-Islamic perception of this area. area. But there was a further aspect to be taken into consideration, being much more connected with internal Genghisid affairs. The Ilkhans belonged to the Tului branch of the Genghisid ruling system. The Tuluids were hostile towards the Chagatais, and they were not, all, not, not at all on friendly speaking terms with the Duchis, the Golden Horde. From the very beginning of Tuluid, Tuluid rule on Iranian soil, they were, there were tight connections between the Iranian Tuluids and their East Asian cousins. A surprising coincidence in terms of time, in terms of time can be observed in the East and the West. In the 70s of the 13th century, Kublai Khan enthroned himself as the emperor of China, thus founding the Chinese imperial dynasty Yuan. When the position of the great Khan had been shrinking he presented in, in, in its value, in its prestige, he presented himself as a ruler of particular and absolutely higher prestige than that. Roughly at the same time, the Tului Ilkhans raised their prestige by proclaiming themselves as the imperial rulers of another, in the meantime, legendary ancient empire. They became what they called Padishahe Iran the Islam or simply Kesroi Iran, thus combining the position of the ancient Sasanian kings and the rank of a caliph, yeah? a position which had been ironically abandoned violently by the first Ilkhan Hulagu in 1258. About three decades later, the Ilkhans accepted Islam instead of Buddhism as their religious belief. And about 1300, the Tuluid Khans in the Mongol, Mongol orbit succeeded vis-à-vis -vis the Chagatais and the Juchis in presenting themselves as imperial rulers of prestigious ancient traditions, kings of Iran and emperors of China. The Ilkhans had a, strong, a good strategic reason to make creative use of the high literary and legendary prestige of the Sasanian dynasty that had 
as we have learned, survived uh, on on the level of, of, of literary and on the, those legends. Yeah? They had enlarged successfully their territories, uh, their territory covered central Anatolia and Mesopotamia, but they had to surrender in 1260 uh, to Mamluk troops from Egypt at the Battle of Ain Jalut in Palestine. These Mamluks had been very tight allies of the Khans of the Golden Horde, and the defeat was the result of an internal Mongol conflict. Still, a much more important internal Mongol conflict arose from the hostile mutual relationship between the Chagatais and the Ilkhans. Chagatai was encircled by the Golden Horde in the north and the west, by the central and eastern Tuluids in Mongolia and in China, and by the Ilkhans in the south. In accordance with this encirclement, yeah, the Chagatais laid aggressive territorial claims against Tuluids in China, it's referred to Mughalistan in today's Xinjiang, and also against the supremacy of the Golden Horde in Khwarazm, yeah? and particularly against the Ilkhanids' pretension, Ilkhan's pretension on their heritage of Khorasan. The Chagatais did not recognize the Oxus as their southern border. To them, Khorasan was not to be separated from Transoxiana, and thus following the tradition of the Caliph, or the Caliphate. Chagatayid territory claims endangered Ilkhanid rule over Iran as an entire unit. These perceptions survived the original Chinggisid dynasties. From 1370 onward, Timur adopted the Chagatayid revisionist pretensions and ideology, thus claiming for Khorasan and Khorasan to be brought under his rule. The Timurid model had the partition of Iran between East and West as a consequence. The Timurid princes perceived themselves as the rulers of Turan and Iran, Turan being understood as their original territory in Transoxiana, Iran as eastern Iran, mainly Khorasan, sometimes including claims on the western territories too, still in the decades after Timur's death in 1405. The western rulers throughout 15th century, mainly Turkmen dynasties, perceived themselves as the legitimate successors to the Ilkhans, Whenever they succeeded in various instances in conquering the city of Tabriz, whence uh, the Ilkhanid uh, capital, perceived themselves as the sorry, when they conquered Tabriz, they immediately proclaimed themselves as Padishahane Iran or as Kasravane Iran. This controversy was not only an intra chinggisid or post chinggisid fight for legitimacy, it was immediately reflected in the contrary visions two important Iranian geographers at the time had presented in their works. Hamdullah Mostofi from Ghazwin, we heard about him, the Ilkhanid, uh, represented the Ilkhanid Iranian version, and Hafez Abru, the Chagatayid, uh, from Herat, yeah, the Chagatayid Timurid version. In the early 16th century, the Safavids succeeded to conquer Khorasan, whilst the Juchi Chaibanids held sway over Transoxania, by the way, and they regained Khorasan from the Chagatayids or the Timurids, yes, and the Timurids were, in fact, in this area, in this part of the Holy were more or less extinct, yes. Still, the Safavids' claim for an Iranian territory in the Ilkhanid in in, in, in sense 
remained not undisputed by the new rulers in Transoxiana, the Shaibanese. They saw themselves and their Uzbek tribal federation as the legitimate heirs of the Timurids. Yeah? From this position, they derived their ongoing claims for Khorasan throughout the whole 16th century. It was not only the improving military power of Shah Abbas I which brought this conflict to an end with the end of the 16th century. The dynastic power of the Shaivanids vanished, and thus this century-old controversy came to something like a stop. Here is a beautiful textual proof of this development from <coughs> the late 17th century, from the time of Shah Suleiman. There was an Iranian tax assessor, so to say, a colleague, a professional colleague of uh, of Hamdullah Mustafi, yeah? and he having spent the greater part of his life on service to the Mughals in India. They were not only Iranian poets having left the countries to India, but also other professional, as for instance uh, this, ad this, this financial administrator, a certain Muhammadin Mufid, and in a nostalgic mood, nourished by living in diaspora, he wrote in his old days a geographic report on his home country, Iran, repeating the pattern of Mostofi Razvini's Nuzatul Gulub, in which he had described his, concept, his own concept of Iran Zamin. And in his introduction, Muhammad Mufid describes expressively the motivation to write this text. He complains heavily about his Indian companions and friends who knew a lot of facts about great rulers like the Ottoman or the Chinese emperors, but had almost no information about their neighboring country, Iran. He glorified the Safavid Shahs, whom he described as those who had shaped the, at that at his time, contemporary Iranian empire. And his laudation concentrates on two items. According to him, it were the Safavid Shahs, and Ismail I in particular, who had reunified the formerly Western Turkmen and Eastern Timurid parts of the country, just re-establishing the Ilkhanid interpretation of Iran. And he praises them for having successfully introduced the Imami Shiite creed in Iran, thus giving this country its specific religious physiognomy, as it was seen at the end of the 17th century in a place like India. This explicit text is a precise and an emotionally moving testimony for a, conscious, for a conscious perception of Iranian territorial identity. I remember a conference in Edinburgh when Masashi Haneda expressed his doubt about a common Iranian identity, neither ethnic nor cultural or linguistic, but in a political sense, during the Safavid period. At that time, I contradicted him and Muhammad Mufid text Mufid's text appears a fascinating proof for my position. A detailed regionalist discussion of this matter can be found in an article of mine, which I can give you later. There remains another item, just to be only touched in this paper, due to lack of time. It is closely connected with my discussion of Ilkhanid aspects of Iranian history. Political and military power during the 13th and 14th century was in the hands of Chinggisid rulers. An immediate result of this dramatic change of power 
was a definite change of Iran's embedding in international relations and contact lines during that period. With the Chinggisid frame, within the Chinggisid frame, closer relationship to China was established due to this intra-Tuluid connection, <coughs> among others. <coughs> and structural aspects of Central Asian tribalism result, uh, <coughs> resulted in changes concerning the traditional character of the tribal system in the flat of Iran and neighboring countries, <coughs> sometimes a very with a very deep, with deep consequences. In a long-time perspective, these Asiatic influences loosened Iran's ties to her close surrounding by what we may call Islamic cultures of the Near and Middle East to a certain extent, at least as much or even more obvious than any insinuated enduring old Iranian or Sasanian nostalgic attitude. Let me refer as an example to the Iranian currency system which shows surprising continuity from the 14th until the early 20th century and with some modification even until the time being. Copying by far the Chinese financial system under, under Ghazan Khan, a new silver coin was introduced as monetary standard. It was named by a traditional uh, coin denomination. It was a dinar, but it was the silver dinar. Until that time, since the Umayyad monetary reform, dinars had been conceived as gold coins, while the dirham, so-called dirham from Sasanian Tarah, had represented Islamic silver <coughs> currency. The Ilkhans, since this so-called Islamic system of currency uh, came down to a crisis and didn't function anymore in a proper sense, the Ilkhans dissolved this gold-silver relation as the main precondition of the caliphs, uh, caliphate's monetary system and replaced it by a double bullion uh, currency based mainly on silver. Since Khazan's time, the times that then new silver dinar and later on its multiples uh, were to dominate the Iranian currency system. Due to continuous depreciation, there existed various multiples in, the, in this dinar of this dinar in various areas, such as the Shahi, later the Abbasi, or the Muhammadi, and eventually, in the 18th, particularly the 19th century, the so-called Hazar, a multiple of thousand dinars, which became popular as Karan, following a title which, uh, under which uh, Fatali Shah, actually first Nadesh, but mainly Fatali Shah, had acquired uh, by a nostalgic uh, relation to Timur, uh, Saheb Karan, yes, and so since there was the word Saheb Karan was uh, on visible on the readable on the coins, yes, the coin was became popular as the Karan, yeah. As it had been a fact already under the Ilkhans, then by following the Chinese model, 10,000 dinars, this means 10 virans, shaped a specific semi-official multiple unit, the so-called Tuman, Tuman being a Mongol word meaning 10,000. In the 20th century, the Quran, Garan, has been replaced by the Rial, but the Tuman had remained in public use for denominating the value of nowadays 10 Rial, a monetary un unit which still represents the former 1,000 dinar standard of the Hiram. And it, it, it goes back immediately 
to Kazan Khan. Yeah? Recently, the Tuman reached the status of official acknowledgement. There are nowadays Iranian coins bearing expressively this traditional denomination. Without any interruption, the Tuman remains to be an integral part of almost all Iranians' everyday life, disregarding the Mongol origin of the word, and the Tuman is definitely almost a symbol for Iranian otherness in comparison with her neighboring northern countries. And my understanding proved awareness of territories and regions, maintenance of monetary systems, and nominal continuity of coinage, but also reception of aspects of Chinese painting in Persian miniature painting, and continuity in specific takeovers in the case of financial and tax administration and administration standards from Central and East Asian traditions, including their maintenance until the 19th century, are among others strong and hard evidences of continuous collective identity throughout a long durée period from late medieval until modern time. As I understand it, identity is a concept permanently being coined by interaction between two othering perspectives, the view from outside and the subject of, on the subject of identification and the subject's view on those others sitting outside, sitting around this subject. I must confess that I do, do not trust too much in capacities of hegemonial leadership displayed by intellectual elites of any countries, nations, or whatever the subject of identification might be, might be throughout history. Identity, as well as other matters of mentalities, is coined at least as much by continuous and changing collective experiences existential, societal, political, and last not least, visual, acoustic, sensual experiences, all of them rather less heroic and than spirit, refinement, style, and thought, as, for instance, literary discourses due to controversial textual interpretation. As proofs for permanent or broken identities, I prefer manifest material and factual evidence to the speculative proof of ideas. This does not at all mean that I deny or even reject the importance of ideas and intellectualism in the historical process, but uh, we must neither not neglect the weight of aspects of power, dominance and hegemony in which ideas and literary concepts and matters of ethic and consciousness are embedded. An example, the Ahle Khalam, the man of the pen, yeah? in many cases ethnic Iranians in the early Islamic period, could only exist as a class or a caste because the Ahle Seif, the men of the sword, had urgently to rely on their skills. If the Ahle Qalam were the bearers of elements of Iranian identity, these elements must have been as operative on the side of the powerful Ahle Seif as well, notwithstanding their different ethnic and linguistic character. In this sense, aspects of Iranian, Iranian identity could develop as results of interacting and at first apparently contradictory processes. In the long run, yeah, myths can be transformed into realities. At the first glance, the famous and well-known contradictory expression Turku-Tajik, Turku-Tazik, yeah, as the men of the sword usually were contributed to the Turks, to Turkic uh, ethnic uh, elements, yeah, these seem to contrast two ethnic and linguistic elements 
of high efficacy, uh, seem to contrast two ethnic and linguistic elements of high efficacy, uh, efficacy in Iranian history. This expression survived in Persephone literary text until the end of the 19th century, until the eve of the coming into existence of the Iranian nation-state. As soon as we get aware of the mainly social and less ethnic char character of this concept, we have to interpret this saying rather as an indication for the trans-ethnic character of Iranian identity and a unified identity than, than an ethnicist concept. And Turku-Tajik does not mean in, make any sense outside of an intra-Iranian societal frame in history. And it was this double-faced and interactive approach that led, among others, Gerardo Nioli to the concept he has displaced in his studies, the idea of Iran. It seems to me that the most remarkable text uh, of uh, the quest of Iranian identity, Professor <coughs> Ashraf already mentioned classical constitutions to the Encyclopedia Iranica. Yeah? <coughs> in he points uh, to various uh, prestigious, uh, to, to various perceptions of Iranian identity, and uh, some of them postulate imminently a master narrative of a continuous conscious ethno-national identity of Iran and Iranians in consecutive episodes. In contradiction to such perception, I see rather great volumes of impressive elements, as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, yeah? brick stones, bright pieces of marble from a huge quarry, which were and are still at disposal for feeding concepts of identity, particularly in the case of Iran, rather a divan than a great uh, than an epic saga. Tracing aspects of diverse, uh, diverse concepts of identity and the course of history means to explore numberless acts of usage of such elements and modules in order to construct various narratives of self-identification. And fulfilling the task to compose such narratives, uh, such narratives, there cannot be any doubt about the fact that Iranian intellectuals have inherited an amazingly, amazingly rich treasure of such elements. And I'm personally grateful for the possibilities which were granted to me to make some very limited use of this treasure. I thank you very much for your